Welcome to Short Story Today, where we celebrate short stories and the authors who write them. My name is John DeSavino, and I'll be your host. In this episode, we celebrate Maryland author Claire Taylor. Claire graduated from the University of Michigan with a degree in psychology. She writes poetry, essays, and stories for adults and children. She is the founder and editor of Little Thoughts Press, a print magazine of writing for and by kids. Her fiction has appeared in the Remington Review, Vast Chasm, Reservoir Road, Emerge Literary Journal, JMWW, Capsule Stories, Ellipsis, and Flash Frog. Today I'll be reading her story, Leap Year Mother. But first, let's listen to my interview with Claire, which took place on June 23rd of this year. I'd like to welcome Claire Taylor to Short Story today. Hi, Claire. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for, for being here, taking time out of your day. I've been looking forward to this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your education, and how you got into writing? Sure. Um, I started writing at a pretty young age. Um, I had like my, my very first publication. Um, it's still like my, my biggest name publication. At 10, I got a poem in Highlights Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like the most thrilling thing that has, you know, ever happened. Um, it's so exciting as a kid to get something in Highlights Magazine. That's still around. I, I remember reading that in the dentist's office when I was a kid, and and uh, yeah. I, I got a few decades on you. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's still going strong. Um, they have not accepted any of my poetry um, as an adult writer, but <laughs> but I got in there when I was a kid. And so just growing up, I just would often write you know, for fun. And I always liked school assignments that were around writing. And um, my dad uh, is a professor and a writer. And he was always, you know, always had a notebook with him, was always, you know, scribbling down thoughts and, you know, ideas for things. And so I just kind of grew up around that idea of, you know, putting putting your thoughts to paper, um, always, you know, finding something uh, worth sort of taking note of and, you know, keeping track of. And so I did a lot of writing growing up in, you know, all those various stages, you know, the young kid stage of writing about, you know, leaves and animals and uh, toys and that sort of thing. And then the kind of teen stage of writing about, you know, angst and sadness and relationships that you don't understand and uh, that sort of stuff. And then uh, in college, I um, studied psychology I grew up, you know, always sort of experiencing depression. Um, I was diagnosed with it when I was kind of in middle school, early teens. And, you know, my writing, especially like when I was a teenager, kind of had a lot to kind of do with kind of working through some understanding of that. And then when I got into college, I kind of shifted away from not my interest in writing. I still took some classes and stuff like that, but shifted more towards trying to kind of have a a better understanding of, you know, psychology and my own experience with mood disorders and the kind of link between creativity um, and depression and how those two things kind of came together for me, how uh, ex- self-expression and writing and kind of creative expression allowed me to sort of manage a lot of those emotions and confront a lot of those feelings and just kind of make sense of who I was and the way in which I kind of interacted with, you know, myself and the world and everything in my mind. Um, And so I went 
studied psychology, kind of thought I would become a psychologist, and then sort of changed my mind at the end of college and said, oh, no, I want to write instead. And I kind of tried to do that for a bit, you know, while working other jobs right out of school. And uh, it was just hard. Um, I wrote for a while for a like an online magazine, and it was tough having everything that you know you wrote have be immediately commented on um, because it was kind of those days where everybody was really posting a lot of comments on things online. Blog posts would get a lot of comments. Um, all of the articles that we put up would get a lot of comments, and it was really sort of generated around that kind of commenting culture that kind of seemed to have been formed a lot by like Gawker and all of the other kind of Gawker mm. media sites. And so it just was really difficult for me to kind of feel this kind of constant barrage of people's opinions about uh, everything I wrote and posted online. And so I kind of pulled back from it for a long time. Um, and I shifted. I went back to like training school and I got my license in massage therapy and I opened my own, uh, my own massage business and kind of just worked with clients and kind of built that business out as something sort of active that I could do something physical. And then I told myself I'd write on the side, right. And focus on writing books and that sort of thing. And it just got pushed to the side for a very long time. And it took me about a decade to finally kind of get back to writing, to kind of find a balance between that work and the creative work that I wanted to do. And a lot of what actually pushed me back towards writing was giving birth to my son and becoming a mother and kind of, again, having to sort of confront this difficult experience in a lot of ways, this experience that really forced me to kind of manage my uh, depression and my mental health in a new way and to kind of figure out some new um, techniques for, you know, addressing my mood. And I went back to writing in large part right after he was born, but then even more so when the pandemic started because I just needed some outlet for trying to make sense of all of the things I was grappling with and all of the things I was uh, thinking and experiencing and just kind of returning to my dad's practice of, you know, putting thoughts on paper and working through them, getting them out of your head, um, keeping track of things. Um, and so that really was the big shift for me into writing. Most of what I have published um, has been published from 2020 forward, basically from the pandemic hmm. forward. Had a couple of publications that came before that, but for the most part, um, everything has kind of been generated out of that kind of period of frustration and chaos and confusion and, you know, kind of trying to make sense of everything going on in my, in the world, in my head, in my life, in my relationships hmm. um, with my son and my family all in that time. Life is very complicated <laughs> and your life, I can hear, you know, the path that led you to where you are now has been a complicated path and you use the phrase getting things out of your head. <laughs> and, you know, it's just so interesting that you, you know, chose psychology to study, you know, which is, I got to be very useful that knowledge as a writer, but it also probably causes a lot more 
things to to come up in you know unexpected ways maybe and i, I think it's so interesting that you went from like this intellectual sort of world to the physical world in terms of your focus you know for your work you ended up being a massage therapist which was completely on the other end, yeah. of, the, end of the spectrum so i'm just curious about that i mean how did you arrive at massage therapy as a place for your work yeah um it's a good question um i it kind of became an idea for me when my my husband runs a lot of marathons um and i was with him um, at one of them and at the end of the marathon, there were some people providing uh, kind of post-race massage. And I thought, oh, that that kind of looks fun. Like I was, you know, a physical person, particularly at the time. And I, you know, like helping people and caring for people. I think that's part of what sort of in initially also attracted me to the idea of, you know, becoming a psychologist, helping people in some way, kind of working through, you know, issues of pain and difficulty in providing sort of care and comfort. And massage therapy is a, just a different way uh, to do that, you know, addressing, you know, the physical body rather than the mind, but kind of with the with a similar sort of aim or goal of helping to provide, you know, comfort and care and helping people manage their, you know, experiences, whether those are issues of anxiety and stress, or their kind of physical issues related to, you know, activity or um, posture or their work. So it, it kind of tapped into some of that, you know, aspect of what attracted me to the idea of, um, you know, counseling and becoming a therapist, uh, but was a little more, a little more active. And uh, because it's such a physical job, doing it full-time is still kind of part-time work. You mm -hmm. just can't, some massage therapists do essentially 40 hours of work a week, but it's a very quick way to burn out and really end up hurting yourself. So yeah. the full-time work is still fairly part-time hours. So I thought, well, I could probably do this and still have time to write um, because I ended up starting my own business and having to kind of manage that aspect of it. I didn't get as much time to write as I hmm. uh, had originally envisioned, at least initially it took me a while to get all of that established and kind of get back to that, uh, get to a point where I did have that space and that time a little more available to me. But I like that I have this one thing that is a little more physical and one thing that is uh, not intellectual is not the right word for it, but that is a little more kind of creative and, mm -hmm. you know, forces me to kind of sit in one spot and kind of focus my mind in a different way. Though mm -hmm. I will say, if you need a little kind of like quiet space to open your mind and let kind of story ideas come in, a massage is a good, a good space for that. Cause I got about 60 to 90 minutes at a time where it's, you know, it's quiet and all I'm doing is sort of moving around and, um, you know, work, working on releasing somebody's tension and it allows my mind to kind of open up. So I get a lot of story ideas that way, but it gives a, a good amount of time of quiet time to just kind of let your mind wander. And this is a good kind of lead into the stories because you clearly are a physical person from what you've just described, you know, physicality exercise, physical strength, all of these things are important to you or necessary for your work and for your life. And they come up in your stories. I mean, the body and um, things of the body are recurring themes in your stories. And um, I have to say, I, you know, you are one of the bolder 
writers of the authors that I've been reading. And I, I love the surprise of, of that in reading your stories because you deal frankly with sex and sexuality and uh, the emotions around sex and confusion that sex and it, sexual impulses can cause in people. So the stories, in all honesty, Bedfellows, Happy Now, and Elegy. Mm-hmm. I mean, sex is a m- major part of the story in all of those. You deal with it differently from story to story. And you obviously have the confidence to feel like you could write stories about sex and the feelings around sex. What was your thought process behind these stories when you started to write them? That's a good question. Well, so I write a lot of different genres and for a lot of different audiences. I mean, I, I have a, my debut picture book is coming out next year and I, I run a magazine for kid lit writers and children writers and stuff like that. Um, I started more kind of writing picture books and stories for my son and then expanded into other types of writing from there once I kind of got back into writing more regularly. So I'd, I don't know if confidence is the right word or um, if, if, if foolishness is more <laughs> sort of accurate in terms of, I don't, I don't know if it'll come back to kind of bite they're, me. But they're I, very closely related, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of it, I think, is that I just, to be perfectly honest, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing as far as um, publishing and sort of long-term kind of marketing and branding of oneself goes. So I'm not really wrapped up in those concerns in probably a way that, you know, I I at least should be somewhat because I don't really kind of know what the trajectory of a writing life is really supposed to look like. It doesn't sort of, it hasn't really occurred to me too much up to this point of, should I be, you know, worried about writing about these things or putting these things out Mm. there. But some of the, to kind of get back to your initial questions, some of the uh, sort of impetus for writing kind of frankly about, you know, sexuality and, uh, you know, relationships, most of my writing tends to kind of center on relationships, is that I think women and especially mothers are sort of not given as many sort of opportunities to be frank about these sorts of things. I don't think anybody tends to sort of bat an eye at the idea of like men writing fairly frankly and openly about sex, but women do it and it's a, its own separate genre of writing, right? Romance Mm. writing and, you know, erotica and all of that is kind of, you know, pushed to the side and I think that's, you know, particularly true um, in our culture when it kind of comes to mothers that people don't really want to hear or are not particularly comfortable with the idea of mothers sort of speaking sort of openly and frankly about, you know, sexual impulses and their sexuality and their desires and those sorts of things. So some of it is just wanting to kind of push back against some of those limitations and, I'm fairly open about I have a kid and I am a mother. Like that's a you know part of my writing identity for sure. Um, and so I kind of you know like to 
be able to demonstrate like here's here's how mothers write about things here's mm. how women writers write about things this isn't just for men basically mm. um and it's not just for you know romance novels not I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with the genre of romance i love romance novels i you know read a lot of them um, but the fact that it's its own kind of separate category that is mostly for kind of women writers and women's stories rather than kind of more sort of literary spaces taking on these stories from women, I think is something that could stand to be changed a little bit or pushed mm. back against. And that brings me back to your stories, which are, you know, clearly coming from a very deep well of feeling. I would think you, that would make you feel, you know, vulnerable as a writer while you're writing these stories. Do you have those experiences? Um, sure. I feel vulnerable about everything all the time. Um, I, you know, again, like I said, I, you know, I grew up and still, you know, suffer from depression. I kind of, for most of my life, feel a little bit like an, you know, an open wound um, mm. just walking around. But so I'm used to sort of a feeling of vulnerability. I will say as far as sort of my fiction goes and most of these stories go, they're not drawn really much from my experience uh, so much as just my sort of interest in observing and evaluating relationships and motivations and those sorts of things. I'm happily married. I've been married for 14 years now. I'm married to my high school sweetheart. I have a really good, solid marriage, a really happy life, a really, you know, supportive family and home life and a good sort of work-life balance. Like mm. I'm very lucky and privileged to have those things, but I, I have that base um, and I'm writing from, from that place, which allows me to sort of kind of explore relationships that don't really have that. A lot of mm. the, the questions that I deal with and the couples that I write um, in these stories are people who aren't communicating particularly well. It's a lot of people who are, you know, hiding their emotions or only sharing bits and pieces of themselves with somebody else or not sort of speaking very openly with their partners about their desires and their needs and their uh, frustrations with each other. And that leads to betrayal often in your stories, I find. Right, betrayal yeah. and grief and you know, anger, um, and just sort of, yeah, the kind of breakdown of relationships. I'm interested in where we as people, where we struggle with each other, right? Where do, where, how do we come together? How do we come apart? Hmm. How do we talk about ourselves and our needs? How do we talk about each other? What do we assume when we're not communicating properly. A lot of my stories center around this idea of lies and secrets and things that we're withholding. How does that affect the self and how does that affect the relationship? I want to try to take what you've just said and connect it to one of the stories. And that's easy to do because I, because what you just said, I could connect to all of the stories. <laughs> the one story that I I'm really drawn to is how did we get here? That I could probably spend a whole hour just talking about that one story. This story is clearly about a marriage, mm -hmm. a marriage that's reached kind of a critical point where, you know, there's, there's a crisis at hand here that they're, the couple is trying to find a way to, to heal, to find, to find their way back to what they had at the beginning of their marriage. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about that story and the genesis and the, 
you know, yeah. what, what takes place in that story? Absolutely. Um, so this is actually one of my favorite stories. Mm. So yeah, it's a, about a, a couple who is, has been dealing with, you know, issues of infertility and uh, child loss. And they're, it's really kind of ripping apart their marriage and they're really kind of struggling and they go back to Florence, which is where they went for their honeymoon to sort of try to kind of get back to the root of their relationship, rekindle some of those feelings they had early on. So part of why I love this story is because it, uh, it is actually the idea for it came from the movie while you were sleeping. Um, uh. <laughs> which is one of my favorite movies. Um, this kind of shows you like, you know, like I said, I read a lot of romance novels. I watch a lot of rom-com movies. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I've got a wide range of sort of interests in, um, <laughs> but you know, in the, the end of a uh, spoiler alert for, you know, a 30 year old movie, but at the end of that movie, the couple gets married, even though they've only known each other for, you know, a week or two, like a lot of rom-coms and they go to Florence for their honeymoon and so I, I love that movie so much, but I always thought like, oh, you know, I wonder, I wonder what it'd be like to be in that marriage of like two people mm-hmm. who have this kind of, uh, you know, fall in love so quickly and kind of uproot the whole story that the movie is set up and then get married and kind of start their life together. And so it came from that idea of like, what would these two characters be like if things didn't go easily in their marriage? These two people who their relationship is sort of built around like not great communication about who they are initially and what they want and, you know, how they feel about each other. And so what, you know, what would happen down the road if they really kind of struggled together and needed to be able to talk to each other and share how they're feeling, but just couldn't, they just didn't have that foundation. Again, I, because I've been with my spouse for so long, we've known each other through so many stages. We, we talk about everything. So I'm like very curious about couples who, who don't talk that Mm. much. You don't communicate that openly or, you know, that well with each other or whatever it may be and kind of how those struggles come out. Um, So the idea, the genesis for that story was sort of wondering what what would happen to all these rom-com characters if you extended the movie into the rest of their life? Like what would those relationships uh, kind of look like and kind of going from there? Um, and you you and go I, pretty, pretty deep in the story. <laughs> I, I do. Yeah. I took, you know, during college, my now husband and I went to Europe and we went to Florence. And so the part of that story about them kind of biking through the Tuscan countryside mm. and not having any money to purchase any food. And they're on this like two hour, like hot bike ride is actually something that happened to us. So Mm. that is sort of a rare example of me taking something directly from my life and putting it into a story. As a writer, how do you approach that where you have to assume the personality, try to understand on a very personal level, the experience of the person that you're writing about? What's your process around that? Well, I think to write, you need to get really good at observing how people respond to things, listening really well to other people's stories. And again, in, in a way that is similar to what I'm doing in massage and trying to understand the, how somebody's life experiences are affecting their physicality, kind of trying to pull from what they're telling me to kind of put a puzzle together for how they might be feeling and you know why their body is kind of holding stress the way it is. 
I think that kind of listening to people's stories, you need to try to kind of figure out what are they, what are they not saying? What are they holding back? Um, what are they hinting at? And in there, I think is kind of the, really the, the interesting stuff that you can tap into mm. when writing that internal monologue that in sort of our everyday life, we don't necessarily share with each other. I think that in writing, that's what we're trying to sort of get to. What are these inner thoughts, these hidden feelings, the things that people want to say or sort of feel like mm. they need to say, but maybe can't get themselves to kind of share. That's what I'm sort of trying to find in a lot of these stories. And so a big part of it is approaching characters with the sort of empathy and compassion that I try to approach, you know, my massage clients and my mm. friends and my family in this sense of, I am here for whatever the kind of internal stuff is. I'm mm. going to try to help sort of understand it and figure it out and bring it out and manage that if I can. I'm trying to sort of infuse characters with some of that. So it's the unspoken that that intrigues you and that and clearly, you know, there's interior monologues in your stories, you know, that reflect that curiosity and that I mean that has to come from your imagination as a writer because it's it is the unspoken. It's you know, it's not what you can observe or hear. You have to kind of create based on, you know, what you're observing, the right. the inner life of the person and um and you do that remarkably effectively in this story and in others. And you you find ways to be very lyrical in expressing that inner life of the person here. His body was a thick block of stone she had to chisel away at whenever she wanted to know what he was feeling. Mm -hmm. Talking about her husband, who was a strapping young guy, obviously. <laughs> and that physical body, you know, it's like covering up the emotion, these things that have visual resonance as well as, you know, emotional resonance. That's a very difficult thing to capture, you know, so concisely. And you do it over and over again. The wall that had built up between her and Jack, visible, a thin shimmer like a spider's web in the right light. You basically equating the wall between the two of them as a spider's web that shimmers in the right light. I mean, that's that's quite a leap, but it works, you know, <laughs> a wall from a spider web. I mean, that where, where do images like that spring from when you're writing? I mean, you write poetry. I should, let's just say to, for, for our listening audience, you are a poet as well. So, yes. <laughs> so that particular story is a really a, a lot about all of the sort of unseen or unexpressed sort of pain that people carry, right? They're kind of wandering through Florence. They're trying to find their way to the hotel and they're passing, you know, houses where they're kind of noticing the people inside. And you, we tell ourselves stories about other people's lives, other people's happiness compared to our own, other people's hardships compared to our own. Really, we know, we know very little about you know, other people, particularly strangers. Um, and so much of what this couple is carrying is unseen to everyone. They're walking through this city carrying this huge weight personally and between them. And it's, you know, only known to them. So a lot of the kind of imagery there is sort of about trying to, from the right angle, you know, what, what can you see in this couple? So that, you know, that spider web, that wall that you can only see if you, if the light hits mm. it just right, right? They're, they're just two people walking along, people looking out of their 
houses at them in the street, wandering, lost. They don't know this wall that's built up between this couple mm. necessarily. Um, the kind of chiseling out his emotions is sort of meant to call on, you know, the fact that Florence is full of, you know, all of these stone, marble, stone statues, statues and mm-hmm. you know, this idea of like, you know, you start with a stone and you chisel it away and here, you know, you've created something new. And so this idea of like, he's just this kind of thick block that she has to kind of slowly break apart and form and shape to kind of understand who he is and how he's feeling. Cause that's not, you know, information that he's, you know, willingly and openly sharing with her. I think there's another line in that story about, you know, how everybody is kind of weighed down by, you know, all of their pain, these little pockets. That's the next quote I have here. Private sorrows carried with them like so many invisible stones tucked into pockets. Yeah. Like everybody ever so slightly weighed down, I think is, you know, what the next line says or something. Yeah. Again, some, some of it, I think does kind of come from the sense that because I've worked so much with bodies and sort of understand bodies and how our emotions sort of play out into our physicality. A lot of what, I am imagining when I'm writing and I'm kind of coming up with these images is sort of the physicality of people just sort of kind of pulled by what is happening to them. Shoulders, you know, hunched in a certain way with stress, Um, you know, the body just sort of twisted and folded in ways that because we're carrying so much that, you know, is not visible to everybody, but that is housed within ourselves. As you were saying that, physical posture because you deal with that in your daily life as part of your you know your massage therapy work those images obviously are things that resonate in you and then <laughs> they find their way into your the stories these are the things that i find so fascinating hopefully the listeners will too about it may not be a direct connection a direct line from one part of your life and your experience in your life to the story but it's very interesting to hear you explain that yeah, it's all there. I think you're kind of certainly always hoping for people to find something in your work to connect to. Um, I think I, again, I, I tend to write so much about sort of relationships and grief and sorrow. And I think there's something among those things that everybody can connect to in some mm. way. It's sort of just part of being human, those topics are going to resonate with some aspect of, you know, everyone's sort of life and experience, at least at some point. You know, again, I think because my writing life and my sort of creative impulse really kind of originated and really grew from an idea of trying to sort of write about my own like experience with depression, especially at a time when I didn't really understand it, that everything is sort of generating, you know, from this idea of when I say I'm fine to someone, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. May not be at all how I'm feeling. Right. And that it's really just what I put on the page that is actually how I'm feeling or is making sense of like what my deeper sort of unspoken you know, emotions are. Mm. And again, that's sort of what I'm tapping into, what I am trying to sort of do with all of my characters is sort of explore, yeah, these kind of deeper unspoken feelings, the things that are hard to communicate, the things that that we hide for our own protection, for the protection of others. 
And I do think that that, again, is something that can resonate pretty much with almost everyone, right? Mm -hmm. We all have things about ourselves that we don't share, that we don't say. The story that brought you to my attention is Leap Your Mother. It, It was an odd experience to have gone from reading Leap Your Mother and then to read these stories. And Leap Your Mother is speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it doesn't appear to be a thing that you have a lot in or at all in the stories of yours that I've read, the other ones. I saw uh, on Twitter a, a call for submissions for a speculative parenting anthology, which is out now. I think it's through Alternating Current and um, I, I, I can't remember the title of it. We'll, we'll get the information for the but, listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I saw a call for that and kind of you know, I, I write a good bit about, you know, parenting, um, especially kind of, you know, in my poetry and kind of nonfiction stuff is a little more kind of parenting focused than my fiction tends to be. So I kind of had a little idea for that and set about writing the story and then went back and found that the story I wrote far exceeded the word limit for the submission call, but I just kind of liked it anyway and sort of kind of fiddled with it and sent it out. Uh, it was ultimately published in uh, the first issue of Vast Chasm. But yes, yeah, so I don't write anything with speculative elements in it. Part of that is that I don't tend to read quite as much with speculative elements. So I'm not as comfortable with them. I've you know read a, you know a few things that kind of are more based in kind of magical realism and um, a little bit of kind of fantasy science fiction stuff. But it's not. It doesn't tend to be like my main focus for reading. So I'm just not as comfortable or familiar with the kind of techniques and mechanics of uh, adding, you know, speculative elements to your writing. I would qualify this as more science fiction if I had to, but I don't want to actually box it like that because it's something, it's way beyond that. It's much more than that. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know what would qualify as, but I, yeah, I essentially just, I saw the call and I kind of had this idea of like, oh, well, what if you had a woman who made some sort of deal, um, you know, she, you know, struggling with infertility and made some kind of deal that would fall under, you know, science fiction or magical realism or whatever it may be that mm. allowed her to have a baby, but the baby was born on leap day. And so she would only, the baby would only age every four years, basically, which sort of it would disappear into sort of an alternate realm uh, in between leap days and only celebrate the, her actual, the baby's actual birthday. Um, and it would only age at that sort of rate. I know a couple of people who, who have a leap year birthday and my son's birthday is late February. And so it, whenever, whenever there's sort of a leap year, it kind of pops in my head of like, it's so interesting. Some people who are born on the 29th, they celebrate on the 28th and some celebrate on the first. And it's always, I've always been curious of like, how did they decide? Like, was it like, you know, if you were, you know, before noon on the 29th, do you do the 28th? And if you were, you know, like what, what's the choice there? So I, I've just always kind of found it fascinating this, you know, idea of ha- having this birthday that only comes about every four years. So yeah, it just, it just kind of generated from that, just as like a simple curiosity of like, you know, what would I do if, you know, mm-hmm. what would that be like? Or what would I have done? And my son wasn't born in a leap year, but, you know, because he's got this late February birthday, like, you know, what would that be like? Um, and then as I kind of set about writing the story, what sort of developed from that was really 
more a story about what it feels like as a parent as your kid is growing. So in this story, you know, Isabel, her child is sort of cast off to some other dimension is what she sort of believes the deal will be. So Mm. she gets a one full year with her from, you know, one February 29th to a February 28th. And then she sort of disappears for three years. And then as Elizabeth thinks will happen, she'll come back and, you know, they'll kind of start where they ended. She'll kind of be suspended in time. Um, and then she'll continue on with her relationship with her daughter from, you know, where they had left off. And then it turns out that doesn't quite end up being the case. And instead, you know, her daughter returns every February 29th. And it turns out she's been somewhere living those three years without Isabel, without her mother. And so Mm. she's, you know, fully three years older than she was the last time she saw her. So it's like Isabel is missing you know, so much of her daughter's life, it's happening, you know, without her in some realm that she can't access. And I think that even when you're with your kid all day, every day, it still sort of feels like that. They sort of say and do things that you're like, you didn't do this yesterday. (laughs) You feel like a whole different person. It's so true. Conceptually, that takes an enormous imagination to come up with that. I mean, it seemed like you were having fun with the the idea of just, you know, really letting your imagination go wild because it, yeah. I mean, it, it was fun. I can see why people write speculative fiction. It's, <laughs> it is, it is fun to explore. Does it make you feel like you want to write more of it? Um, I've done like a little bit more since then, like nothing that has been published, but, but yeah, I have a, like a story about a woman who it gives birth to a child who turns out to be a puppy. And so she like, can't figure out like where she fits in. Um, like this sort of question of do people who love their pets, love their pets as much as people who love their children. And that kind of constant how having a pet is different from having a child. And so it's sort of playing with some of those um, ideas and she kind of falls somewhere in between and can't find a community and that sort of thing. So that, that does kind of deal with it in that way. But that story and Leap Your Mother, too, are, I think, even though they have these kind of more odd imaginative elements, they still, at their heart, are about relationships and the struggles of how we feel about each other. And again, the stories that we tell about, you know, ourselves and the other people in our lives, like in Leap Your Mother, you know, Hannah, the daughter, she's going on about her life in some realm you know, independent from Isabel. Like there's nothing to Hannah that seems sort of out of the ordinary, except that, you know, sometimes her mom says things to her that, you know, are different than what she's said before, right? Because she's she's mm. lived in this alternate dimension with this kind of alternate version of her mother. Um, and so it's all Isabel struggling to sort of figure out how to relate, you know, all these things that she's lost. How does she connect to her daughter? How can she make her love kind of clear? How does she explain to her what she has figured out has gone on and where Hannah has been versus where Isabel has been? These things that are hard for her to say, hard to explain to a child, hard to make sense of. And so she's held them back. She hasn't told her it's all this stuff still that is sort of unspoken. These things that we can't figure out how to communicate and how to make sense of that would allow us to relate to people in a different kind of fuller way. And instead she's kind of, Isabel's in this position where she's just sort of forced to constantly be responding to these changes in her daughter and, you know, this sort of 
this co-parent that she, you know, doesn't have access to. And it's difficult. Relationships are hard. And in the, you know, story about the mother who gives birth to a puppy, it's, you know, trying to sort of find a community and like, you know, how, when you feel isolated and, you know, different and alone and trying to kind of work your way through, you know, the struggles of parenting and, you know, what it's like to not have that village, as people say, you know, they're both stories that I wrote during the pandemic. And I think they kind of sit well in that space of what is it like to sort of, yeah, see time continuing on, which we can really see kind of in our children and the way they grow mm. and change over the course of a couple of years, but also feel, yeah, this constant sense of stasis and like, we're kind of like trapped in this, this kind of same base, just kind of waiting for whatever is going to come next. Motherhood is clearly something that I, I understand why that would be a source of reflection and, you know, a place where you would probably have a lot of things that you might want to work out, you know, in on the page in terms of trying to make sense of the, the experience because it's an ongoing process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's such a complicated relationship to work through because, um, especially when your kid is, you know, little. And so there's, you know, so still so dependent on you for, you know, so many things, it, your kid feels so much like a, like they're a part of you. And yet they're this, mm. you know, this separate person. And as the years go, you kind of see more and more, they kind of become, you know, this sort of independent self. And that's like beautiful and wonderful. And also like, so, so painful. Cause it does feel like having like a part of you kind of detach from yourself. Um, and there's just so many complicated emotions around it. There's so much you kind of want to say or want to express to your kid that they either just don't need to hear or <laughs> be able to take in. I think, I can't remember the exact line, but uh, poet Kate Bayer has a poem where it's a poem like for her son. And she says, you know, kind of, I'm paraphrasing her, but she says essentially like, you know, that she kind of wants to tell him, you know, I, I carried you inside me. Like I, you know, I grew you, I carried you inside me. And, you know, the poem ends with her son saying something like, I didn't ask you to. And I think it's just like, it's such a powerful line to me because it is so true of your relationship with your, your child and what that means to you as a parent and as a mother is very different, I think, than your child's relationship to you. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I mean, you, you know that you and your child were one being. Your yeah. child has no concept. No, I mean, that means They're nothing to them. Are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I think Leap Your Mother is sort of playing with some of that as well. This has been a wonderful conversation, Claire. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of, I know you have a very busy life and I appreciate you taking time out today to speak with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Claire has a beautiful website where you can find links to much of her work. The URL is www.clairemtaylor, all one word, C-L-A-I-R-E-M-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. And now we'll move on to Claire's story, Leap Year Mother. So here it is, Leap Year Mother by Claire Taylor. Isabel sets a vase of tulips on the windowsill. She folds back the edge of the blanket on the bed and smooths the wrinkles from the sheets. She checks the clock, 11.55 p.m. In five hours, Hannah will be 16. Isabel imagines her daughter's hands, the length of her fingers. She pictures Hannah's legs, long and smooth, freshly shaven. 
her breasts two swollen nubs at twelve, now likely round and fuller, marking the start of her shift into womanhood. Isabel straightens the books on Hannah's shelf. She uses the cuff of her sleeve to wipe the thin line of dust accumulated along the edges of each spine. The heat comes on with a whoosh, and Isabel starts. She takes a breath and rubs her hands over her thighs to settle herself. There is nothing left to clean or straighten, not that it would matter anyway. By dawn the whole room will be different, morphing suddenly into a space Isabel is expected to recognize as if three years have not passed since she last saw it. She checks the clock again, 12.01. It is February 29. Isabel lowers herself to the floor and sits with her legs crossed. She rubs her thumbs into her palms, one hand, then the other. She pulls her hair into a low bun and releases it again, up and down, her scalp tightening and relaxing, tightening and relaxing. She watches the bed and waits for her daughter to return. Isabel had misunderstood the plan or failed to read the fine print, though it wouldn't have made a difference, really. By that point, she would have said yes to anything. When Isabel told Henry what she had agreed to, that they would finally have a baby, he thought she had lost her mind. They would need to move every three years, she explained, so their daughter would always be the new kid and the different rate at which she aged wouldn't be as obvious. In the off years, she and Henry could travel, disappear so no one would catch on or inquire into the whereabouts of their child. You always said you wanted to travel, Isabel pointed out. Henry returned to that idea after every failed attempt and heartbreaking loss. More time to travel right at the top of his prose column, the weight of the whole world trying to tip the scale toward giving up, moving on. But Isabel's longing was heavier. That's no way to live, he told her. She didn't bother to point out she was barely living to begin with. A shadow of herself. Those had been Henry's words. Nothing left there for him to hold at night, to pull into the warmth of his body and soothe. She didn't want to be soothed. She wanted to do the soothing. A quarter of motherhood was better than no motherhood at all, she told him. Twenty-five percent of her life lived the way she wanted. I want more than that, Henry said in return. He packed up his boxes and was gone by the end of the week. Isabel went through with it on her own. In the end, she tried to game the system, pushing with all her might to force Hannah to slip from her body before the day turned over, but to no avail. Hannah had been stubborn, waiting for the rising sun to officially welcome a new day. She was destined to be born at a specific date and time. That was the agreement. Isabel clung to Hannah that first year like a boy. The intensity of her love kept them both afloat. The days ticked by, the restless nights whizzing along until it was March 1st and Isabel awoke to the bed empty beside her, Hannah delivered to an unknowable space where she would remain frozen in time for three years until she appeared again, only hours older than when Isabel last held her. Or at least that's how Isabel had understood it. She cut herself off from the world around her, broke ties with friends, rarely left her home. She watched the chunky-thighed infants around her slowly grow into noisy, lanky four-year-olds as she held fast to the memory of Hannah's body in her arms and waited to officially celebrate her daughter's first birthday. But the child who woke up in Isabel's house on the morning of the next February 29 was not a wide-eyed one-year-old, delighted and mesmerized by the colorful balloons Isabel had hung from the ceiling. No, this was a child without baby fat. Her long legs stretched out across a twin bed that had mysteriously appeared in place of the crib that had been there the night before. 
Her thin, patchy hair had become thick locks that trailed over her shoulders and across her pillow as she slept. Her lips were parted, and Isabel could spy two full rows of teeth. When Hannah awoke, she was not excited by the decorations, nor confused about the who, what, where of her surroundings, as Isabel expected. She was simply furious with her mother for reneging on the promise to spend her fourth birthday at Disney World, a promise Isabel didn't remember making, a promise she could not possibly have made. The rest of the day proceeded like that, as did much of the year to follow. Hannah constantly frustrated by her mother's confusion, Isabel no longer knowing how Hannah liked her toast, unable to recall Hannah's favorite bath-time song, Isabel performing the bedtime routine out of order, insisting Hannah brush her teeth before they read books, Hannah repeatedly throwing herself to the ground in a fit of tears and irritation. Isabel had worried that after three years apart her bond with Hannah might feel diminished, but she didn't anticipate feeling like a stranger in her own body. Hannah demanding her mother be a version of herself Isabel had never known. By the time Hannah returned again at eight years old, Isabel thought she understood. It was Isabel, not Hannah, who existed in a sort of liminal space, or they both did, but not together. There was only one Hannah, forever inhabiting the same body, waking each morning in the same bedroom, no matter the day, no matter the year. But somewhere beyond her consciousness there existed another Isabel, Schrodinger's Isabel, Isabel called her, a version of herself that was neither alive nor dead, as far as she could tell, a ghost, but not a ghost. In the years when Hannah was out of Isabel's sight, she grew and changed under the guidance of Schrodinger's Isabel, forming memories of a shared experience Isabel couldn't access. Hannah resented Isabel for things Schrodinger's Isabel had done. She raged against her for breaking promises Schrodinger's Isabel had made, for contradicting the advice Schrodinger's Isabel had given. "'God, you're so stupid!' Hannah screamed at her once, on the last day she was eight years old, just before she was set to vanish for another three years. "'I know,' Isabel replied, her frustration getting the better of her, the unfairness of it all, her resentment of Schrodinger's Isabel cresting inside her, pulling her under. "'You think I don't know how stupid I am?' She crawled into Hannah's bed that night and pressed her face into her daughter's hair, wrapped her arms around Hannah's sinewy frame. It was so odd to Isabel, the reality of her daughter. The bones and the skin and the heat of this person who, not that long ago, had not even existed, who remained so unknowable. The ferocity of her love for this child, the way it beat inside her like a second pulse, another life force flowing alongside her own. I love you, she whispered to the back of Hannah's head. I love you too, came Hannah's groggy reply. Which me? Isabel longed to ask, but didn't. She decided she would bring it up the next time Hannah came. Twelve seemed old enough for Hannah to learn the truth. But as she waited for morning to arrive, for Hannah to miraculously appear again in the empty bed like a stranger wholly transformed into a new stage of adolescence, Isabel realized she didn't even know where to begin. I am your mother, she imagined herself saying. She could picture Hannah rolling her eyes, saying, duh, in reply. Your mother is not your mother. I am your mother. I know you think you have one mother, but you have two mothers, except that your other mother is not your mother. I am your mother. You only have one mother, and that mother is me. 
She waited for the right moment to present itself over the course of the year, searching for any sign that Hannah could sense the difference between Isabel and Schrodinger's Isabel. Like how Isabel suddenly hugged her too tight and too long at bedtime, or how she asked so many questions, wanted to know so much, Isabel needing to catch up on three lost years compared to only one. But Hannah reacted to Isabel the way she always had, loving and hating her in equal measure depending on her mood, and in the end Isabel awoke again to an empty house, having said only good night instead of goodbye. But now it really was time. Hannah would be sixteen, and this was the last year Isabel would spend with her before she was officially an adult. She would begin with the story of Hannah's birth, the story she told her daughter every February 29, the story Schrodinger's Isabel could never tell, the one story that tipped the balance in Isabel's favor. She may be your mother more of the time, Isabel would say, but I was your mother first. Only Isabel could recall the tingling numbness that spread through her thighs as Hannah's head dropped down into her pelvis. Only Isabel felt the ache through her lower back in the place where the structure of her body had irrevocably shifted. Only Isabel could close her eyes and still hear the faint echo of Hannah's first wail, desperate and primal, an aching, needful sound. She would tell her about the choice she made, how desperately she'd wanted Hannah, how she loved her so much she was willing to suffer three long years without her again and again if it meant getting to have her at all, how she held each moment, each memory tight to her chest like a treasure, a precious glowing gem sustaining her through the period when Hannah was gone. If motherhood was measured in loving, no one could claim Isabel wasn't fully and rightfully Hannah's mother. If it was measured in sacrifice, Schrodinger's Isabel had no stake to the claim. Hannah needed to see the truth to understand that Isabel was the one deserving of her daughter's love. I chose you, she would tell Hannah. I made you. I am your mother. I am her mother, Isabel whispers to the dark, empty room. It is 4.42 in the morning, 14 minutes until Hannah arrives. Isabel always stays awake for the moment of Hannah's arrival to watch her daughter suddenly materialize before her eyes. It reminds her of Hannah's birth, a moment far more exhausting but no less miraculous. Hannah suddenly there, a whole person emerging from the dark, brought into being, blinking to life. That is another thing Schrodinger's Isabel doesn't know, the exact time of Hannah's birth. Or perhaps she does. Perhaps Schrodinger's Isabel is right now sitting on the floor of Hannah's bedroom, waiting for the moment when Hannah disappears. Perhaps she does this every February 29, trying to soak up the last few hours of Hannah's presence to imprint the image on her mind, hoping it will carry her through a year of Hannah's absence. Isabel knows how it feels to watch Hannah vanish, like a kind of death witnessed repeatedly, a wretched cyclical grief but she will not feel sorry for Schrodinger's Isabel. She refuses. I am her mother, Isabel says again, louder this time. Is that so? The voice comes from a dark corner of the room where Isabel cannot make out the speaker, but she recognizes it immediately, knows it like she knows her own voice, because it is her own, except it's not. You think you love her more because you were there first. Schrodinger's Isabel steps out of a shadow, and through the fading darkness of the bedroom, Isabel is just able to make out her face, Isabel's face, her roomy, 
bloodshot eyes, red cheeks streaked with tears. If you are her mother, Schrodinger's Isabel goes on, her voice pointed and sharp, ready to strike, then tell me, where is Hannah? She pierces Isabel with a stare that makes Isabel's breath catch in her chest. She knows nothing about this woman, Isabel realizes, but Schrodinger's Isabel knows everything about her. She can feel it in the intensity of her look. Every thought, every heartache, Schrodinger's Isabel knows them all. Every burst of anger, every throbbing pulse of love she's ever felt for Hannah, Schrodinger's Isabel felt too. Isabel looks at the clock. It is 4.58 and Hannah is not here. What have you done with my daughter? she says. Our daughter, Schrodinger's Isabel replies, but she softens under the weight of the words. Her shoulders drop and her head curls forward. She begins to cry. Isabel, Isabel says. She is afraid now. The way Schrodinger's Isabel slumps forward is too familiar. How her body folds in on itself, pulling inward, trying to plug a space that appeared suddenly, to fill her emptiness with something tangible, something human. It is useless, Isabel knows. Her body a square peg, the loss a round hole. What happened to Hannah? She braces herself for the answer, but still it hits her with the force of a pile driver, the words reverberating down through her toes. There was an accident. Hannah was out with her friend, a new driver, probably texting, Schrodinger's Isabel says, the sharp rage creeping back into her voice. Did she... How did she... On impact. Schrodinger's Isabel saves her from saying the word. Or at least that's what they told me. When? Isabel asks, and Schrodinger's Isabel has to look away from her to answer. January 17. Now it is Isabel's turn to crumple, all the air pulled from her lungs in a single breath. She collapses to the floor, but just as suddenly she is up again, propelled across the room by her anger, her grief. How could you let this happen? She is screaming at Schrodinger's Isabel. You're supposed to protect her. You're her fucking mother. She pushes her as hard as she can, and Schrodinger's Isabel crashes back against the wall. She's a teenager, Schrodinger's Isabel yells back. Isabel charges at her again, but this time Schrodinger's Isabel grabs her arms and pins them to her sides. What was I supposed to do, she says. Lock her in her room? Barely let her live? You have no idea what it is like to raise a teenager. Isabel falls to her knees from the impact of the words. She feels both weightless and immovable, real and unreal, alive and dead. Yes, well, she says, looking up at Schrodinger's Isabel, who is still standing, hovering above her. You have no idea what it is like to lose your only reason for living. Yes, I do, she replies. Schrodinger's Isabel lowers herself to the floor beside Isabel. She wraps an arm around Isabel's shoulder and gently guides Isabel's head to rest against her chest. Isabel feels the rise and fall of breath perfectly in time with her own. She listens to the quiet thump of her heartbeat, both of their heartbeats pulsing as one. I do know. Schrodinger's Isabel says, as she runs a hand over Isabel's head, gently combing her fingers through Isabel's hair. Isabel pictures her daughter, the sweet bulge of her infant belly, the thick fat of her baby neck and thighs, then Hannah's slim, lithe body, 
her second toes longer than her big toes, her pale, sparse eyebrows, chapped lips, rough elbows, the small scar under her chin, the one across her right knee. Isabel never knew where they had come from. Then Hannah as a grown woman. Isabel imagines the sharp angles of her face softening with age, the gentle crease of the forehead that made all the women in Isabel's family who had come before her look perpetually skeptical. The same crease settled into her own skin a few years ago, and Isabel reaches up and touches a finger to it. For a moment she imagines that she is Hannah, her head resting in her mother's lap, Isabel, both mother and child, soothing and being soothed. What do I do with all of this pain? Schrodinger's Isabel cuts through her reverie. Isabel does not want to help Schrodinger's Isabel. She wants to blame her, hold her responsible, to let Schrodinger's Isabel be the receptacle for all of her pain, a magnet for her grief. Let her pull all of the misery out of Isabel and have it stick to her instead, weighing her down. We are not the same, she wants to tell Schrodinger's Isabel. I cannot help you. But of the two of them, Isabel is the expert on loss. You carry it, Isabel says. For how long? Forever. I don't think I can do that, Schrodinger's Isabel replies. Isabel looks up at her own heartbroken face. You have to, Isabel tells her. You are her mother. Thank you, Claire, for allowing us to share that astonishing story. Well, that's the end of our episode today. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when our guest author will be Jules Chung. The music you hear at the beginning of each episode is by C.S. Fuqua, and the closing music is by Matt Hawkins. You can find out more about their music from a link on our homepage at shortstorytoday.com. You've been listening to Short Story Today, where we celebrate short stories and the authors who write them. Across the bridge of stories are...